Emotional Cripples is an entertainment podcast which contains frank discussions about mental health. Listener caution is advised. Welcome to episode one of Emotional Cripples, a podcast about male mental health. Now, technically, we have already done one episode, um, the pilot, and it's available to download. So if you haven't heard that, then you should probably start there and come back here. Yeah, this is this is episode one proper, isn't it? This is where we really yeah. kick off as a season. Yeah, because there's all sorts of stuff in there about who we are, why we're doing this, um, you know, why the hell it's called Emotional Cripples. There are probably people at this very moment going, getting onto Twitter complaining about it. But Yeah, just go back and listen to the pilot. Just go back and listen to it. Stop it's all, getting yeah. angry about it and go back and Calm listen down. to what's explaining down. about it. <laughs> Um, For now, though, uh, let's crack on with episode one. Uh, I'm Andrew Lowe. I'm Tim Tucker. Now, one thing thing you often hear on podcasts, Tim, is a sort of preview of what's to come in the episode, you know, so sort of highlights of future bits. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. But, you know, people are busy, aren't they? There's a lot of demands on their time. Yeah, fair enough. They want to know that this is worth committing to. Should I keep listening? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, that is a lot of work. That's a lot of editing work. Mm. So you just have to trust us. We're not going to bother with that. You just have to trust us and stick with us for half an hour or so. It's not long. It's all going to be good, it? most of it, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's the main thing you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just be- <laughs> generally, though, we're going to be talking today to a hypnotherapist. Um, he does a great job demystifying hypnotherapy uh, and explaining how it can help with mental health issues. I mean, particularly anxiety. And then um, we'll also talk about what we've been thinking about this week and what we've been using to help with our uh, mental health issues and we think might help other people. So what's caught your attention this week? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been using a, an app. I seem to be obsessed with apps. Mm-hmm. I keep mentioning apps. I'll have to try something else, some other media. But yeah, an app on uh, Mood Notes, which has been helping me track my mood. Mood Notes. Mood Notes, yeah. M-O-O-D, like your mood. Actually, it's a kind of mood tracker. Okay. A journal, if you like. Um, tracking your your the way that you feel about um, well through the day so you can not only is it a good tracker um, you you basically uh, at any time that you're feeling something positive negative whatever you can input it into the app but it actually gives you feedback on that so it asks you really useful questions about what's causing you to feel that way um, you know gives you prompts uh, and then starts to ask you about any kind of uh, traps that you might be falling into have you seen george lucas's film thx 1138 tim <laughs> are you going to make this relevant it is <laughs> or are relevant, you just bored yeah. with what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's now, my question to you <laughs> <laughs> i haven't seen that actually is that is that what, what made you ask yeah it's like a dystopian science fiction it's a film he made before star wars i think before american graffiti actually and he i've heard of it because uh, it's, it's what the sound system he uses his base is named after yeah. isn't it yeah yeah that's sort of all underground everyone's bald i remember <laughs> and uh <laughs> and there's a kind of that's like planet runs. of the apes as well <laughs> Yeah, no, but they're all, I think they're all underground. I think they're all sort of like a dystopian reality. And there's sort of droid droid kind of cyborg things that are kind of controlling everyone. And no one's allowed to have sex. No one's allowed to, um, you know, feel feelings or any of that kind of stuff. Right. I think it's a kind of, it's anyway, I'm getting to the point of this. <laughs> in that um, what they can do is they can go into these weird little booths 
and they talk to this machine that says, what's wrong? And they then they say, oh, how they're feeling. And then they say, <laughs> and the machine, but the machine isn't really reacting to them. It's just saying, it's just I've got loads of pat sort of respons- responses. And that's what right. immediately came to mind when you talked about mood <laughs> notes. <laughs> that you're, you're talking to... Um, well, it's, it sounds, yeah, talking it sounds to, better than that. It sounds like the future's yeah, actually better than yeah. the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Although while you were saying that, it reminded me of a Futurama episode where Bender goes into a, a booth, a, oh, yeah. a suicide booth. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Fry gets trapped in there as well. Um, yeah. But and, and what I loved about that episode, by the way, is that it, it has two options, quick and painless or slow yeah, and yeah. painful. <laughs> and he somehow chooses slow and painful. <laughs> That's what Homer would do as well. That's a kind of quite a Simpsons-y moment, isn't it? Yes. But, but I think, but yeah. So the difference, obviously, the difference between mood notes, I suppose, and George Lucas's yeah, THX one one three eight is that you are allowed to have sex in this yeah. in this world, uh, and as as far as I'm aware, you're not brought, run by sort of cyborgs with cattle prods. No. But so there there are there are differences. It's much better than that. Yeah, no, the, yeah. I mean, and the idea of, I've never done a mood journal before. Apparently, this is quite a, an established thing, and um, I might have, I've never done it in part of therapy or anything. But what the whole thinking behind it is that as you track, you kind of become mm. more self aware. Uh, one of the things that I realized actually doing it was that I'm, I'm not as depressed all the time as I think I am, because obviously you put your, your positive moods in as well, um, not, just, mm. not just when you're feeling down or anxious or depressed but when you're feeling happy um, and it gives you a good feedback on uh, what your day is looking like in terms of your moods. Um, so I found it really useful. Are you speaking into it? No, you don't speak into it. That, that would be more like the THX 1138. Okay. It? It's more, it's more like a, there's a face and you either drag up for happy and it starts yeah. smiling yeah. or you drag down for sad Using emojis. That, that sounds like a ludicrous uh, user, right. usability um, issue, but that that works quite well. And then, yeah, I'm not sure Sigmund Freud was sort of uh, foresaw <laughs> foresaw that in the future of psychotherapy. No, he probably thought it'd be more nuanced than that. But yeah. but after you've said whether you're slightly happy or slightly sad, or very happy or very unhappy, right. it asks for you to literally, if you want to, you have a, the option of saying, oh, I'm feeling these feelings, and it gives you a whole right. range of emotions, like I'm feeling anxious or depressed or worried or down. Um, and then you can also enrich that entry, another option, by saying what made you feel that. And that's where you get into that. Part of the description of this is a CBT, Cognitive Behavioral yeah, Therapy. Cognitive. Yeah, I know. I, I, I got it yeah. right this time. Um <laughs> So it's a it's a tool for that as well because you can then start to identify the triggers on the app. Right. All of which I've found quite useful. I don't know if I'm making this sound very straightforward, but it is it's much more straightforward than it sounds. So I've actually started to do it regularly so that I'm not just put you know, you, there's a temptation to pick it up when you're feeling strongly down. Yeah. And only then, and then you'd get a false impression. So, so it's better so it's, it's quite positive because you sort of look at it and you think, actually I'm not so utterly miserable. <laughs> As I think I am, like all the time. Yesterday looked like I was quite yeah. enjoying life. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that, that the thing about it is that it reminds you that you're sort of trapped in your head, and you're, and it's a way of stepping outside of that, perhaps. And you can, you know, you can look at the reality of your mood. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things it does when if you 
do start saying these are the triggers, it starts warning you of your your most usual triggers. So one of them would be catastrophizing, um, you know, always seeing a situation as possibly coming out as as worse as it can. Um, and so you start to become more self-aware of, oh, yeah, that is a trigger. That's that's probably yeah. my worst one. Uh, and starting to be able to avoid those more, at least deal with them and preempt them more. Um, so it's really good for that. And it makes it quicker than filling in forms. And also, I suppose you, the, the thing is, you've always got your phone with you, haven't you? The, the key exactly. thing about this is that mm. there'll be sort of people listening going, oh, I'll just use a diary, just use a notepad. <laughs> Just, uh, you Are you know. sure? That, yeah, there will be that kind of person. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. But just speaking like that, I like but, those um, people. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, they'll be just contrarians, just saying, "Fucking apps." Yeah, you know, just uh, just speak to people. Yeah, you know, write 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 it down on a piece of paper, like the olden days. But, but, yeah. but but the good thing about it is that everyone's got their phone with them. So if you're waiting for a bus or a, or a lift i know it's i can't wait for lifts anymore without looking at my phone um no. that um you can just pop something in into the, yeah. the app can't you and it's as soon not, as you're feeling you know, it exactly it's around you. in your bag yeah yeah exactly great so if i say um hypnotherapy then you might get uh images of swinging watches uh, people being tricked into doing animal impersonations some kind of theatrical entertainment but is there a robust therapeutic basis to hypnosis that can help with mental health issues? This episode's guest is Steve Carey, who's a clinical hypnotherapist and the head of school at the Academy of Hypnotic Science, based in Victoria, Australia. Have I got all that right, Steve? Absolutely spot on, Andrew. So do you get a lot of the prejudice about hypnosis still? Or do, you, do you find things are a bit more enlightened these days? They probably are. When people say they're sceptical about it to me, I say, good, so you should be. Why, why wouldn't you be? If you haven't experienced it and you've never, you know, you've never encountered it, it does sound rather, uh, rather bizarre. There's, yeah. a, there's actually, there's really kind of two schools of thinking about hypnosis. One is the sort of school of magical thinking, which is what most people have been exposed to. You see stuff on the stage. Like a Jedi, Jedi mind trick. Yeah, exactly, like a Jedi mind trick. You see people on the stage or in movies or you read the book about them in books and they are doing something weird and they've clearly got this real magical power a mind trick Th that really does make people skeptical because you then inevitably you've got nothing to compare it with in the real world the other school um, the one that I um, am yeah. much more uh, in tune with is that it's it's there's nothing really about it that you don't encounter anywhere else in the world uh, in your own experience uh, if you've ever been in a daydreaming state, you know that time can pass you by, um, you know, can, can go by really quickly. If you've ever seen people playing sport, you can see that it's possible for uh, pain signals to be um, switched off for a certain period of time until the end of the game. So, you know, a, a lot mm. of the things that are associated with the power of hypnosis are, are not exclusive to hypnosis. They just kind of come together in a, in a particular combination. It's kind of seen, I think, hypnotherapy as the kind of treatment that helps with addiction or, you know, curing people from smoking. You work with broader uh, mental health issues as well, don't you? Particularly anxiety. Yes, yes, I do. And and um, anxiety is 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 a very good. Ex I'm glad you picked that one. Actually, it's <laughs> it's a good one um, to help start thinking about the approach of of hypnosis of of hypnotherapy, um, because 
we all experience anxiety. Um, there's no there's no question about that. For some of us, it's 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 crippling. It it really is. A, um, you know, it, it really constrains how we can how we can live our lives and w what we're capable of doing, and yet it's it, it's really only a continuum. You know, it's it, that we're, we're in the right circumstances we could all be as anxious as hell, um, and so we should be. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be able to use hypnotherapy to be able to extinguish anxiety completely. It has an evolutionary purpose, uh, and I think one of the, one of the really profound things that I heard said was that what your client is presenting with is not a problem, but a solution that's no longer working. Right. Okay. Now, Let's get my head right not now. a problem, but a solution <laughs> that's no longer working. Now, clients never conceive of their of what they're coming to you with as being a problem that's no longer working. It's always a problem. And, of course, it can be. You know, crippling anxiety is, is a hell of a problem. It's a fucking terrible yeah. problem. But the thing about reconceiving it as being something that is, you know, a, a solution that's no longer working is um, it then it's then not something to be got rid of. It's something to be um, to be understood. And if you like um, to find out what the job is that it is doing. I mean, yeah. you know, we all know what anxiety is there to do generally to help with the fight or flight response. And so that your gut tells you, you know, when the nutter puts mm. his first foot on the train, you know, the nutter <laughs> has arrived. We all know that instantly. And you feel a yeah. surge of adrenaline through the body yeah. and think, oh, please, Jesus, don't let him sit next to me. <laughs> I will do anything for this to pass me by. So we have a finely attuned um, right, It's when you start feeling that about everybody that, that you can call it anxiety. Well, that's, that's right. You've just got too good at it. Yeah. And, and this fear circuit was developed, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago mm. for a, a world which is very different from the one that we live in. You know, mm. fortunately, I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but I live in, I don't live in a world where my life is constantly under threat. And so, so the, that fear circuitry um, doesn't need to be at that high alert, but for whatever reason, it can be through trauma, it can be, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, it can be from any number of different things. It just gets heightened to a point where it can be triggered by the the merest little thing, or or apparently by nothing, and that's very that's very upsetting for people when they 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 can't understand why it is being triggered. It seems to be random, you know, panic attacks that are not related to anything, right. and that then comes with its own burden because the, the client starts to think. You know, Jesus, am I am I actually going mad here? Because, mm. you know, I could understand if it happened when, whenever I saw a dog yeah. or my boss. But when it happens randomly, I think that means I'm going mad, and it doesn't. It just means that for whatever reason, your body has got particularly attuned to doing it and does it. You know, is kind of loaded with adrenaline anyway, so it just does it. You know. Too, too easily. So how do you work with clients? What's the nature of your work if someone comes to you with, say, generalised anxiety or, or anxiety issues? Well, you, you would be aware, Andrew, that, that one of the classical approaches to things like um, anxiety or, or uh, panic or whatever, or phobias, is something that used to be called um, flooding. Yeah. Um, which is to generate the very circuitry that the person is trying to avoid so that they are overwhelmed with it repeatedly and then it loses its it loses its impact 
That sounds a bit stressful uh, to me. It is a bit extreme, but of course what hypnosis allows you to do is to recreate some of the benefits, some of the advantages of that in a controlled setting mm. where you're actually not really flooding someone. You can control it. So what I would tend to do, for example, and, and you know, just imagine that that um, this is this is your yourself. I would invite you to summon up a recent memory of 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 an occasion of that of that behaviour, if you like, um, mm. and then also to have available uh, a pleasant memory, uh, and then mm. effectively get you to flip between the two while reassuring you that this is just using the power of your mind. There is nothing really here to be afraid of, and there is you know there is um, if it starts to feel overwhelming at any point, we can jump straight out of that and move on to something else. Or, you know, if jumping to the pleasant memory doesn't achieve it. Now, that's, that sounds almost trite, but it is quite remarkable because if you get someone to, um, to rate their anxiety out of 10, and then you get them to, if you like, to invite the anxiety to come and speak to them, one of the things that happens is because, of, of course, they have never, ever invited this to happen. Why would you? It's it's horrible when it happens and it's overwhelming. You try to get away from it. Exactly. So you feel like you're going to die. If you can um, be comfortable enough to invite it in in a controlled setting where you feel safe and secure, a couple of things happen. If you do this repeatedly, flipping between the anxiety and the pleasant memory, eventually the body kind of gets a bit pissed off and goes, hang on, wait a minute. I'm doing all this work here and you're not giving me the response. You're not responding to the anxiety. You're sort of kind of severing the Link. Yeah, it, it, that's probably not the, the best way to think of it. I think is is like um, you know, if you ask someone to do multiple sets of push-ups, eventually they the, the muscles wouldn't respond anymore. They just get tired. So mm. if you get the anxiety circuitry to repeat itself, but you're not responding, the brain is not kind of is not playing mm. the body's game. Eventually, the body kind of says, "Look, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore." So that's what happens if you do it repeatedly. The person finds that when they bring up the unpleasant stimulus or the feeling that they are trying to avoid, it, it becomes less severe because the body is just not, not responding as well. That's one thing that happens. The other thing that happens, which I think can be really, really helpful, is to notice how that feels in the body and when and where it starts. Now, you can imagine that someone with, with generalised anxiety or, um, or social anxiety or whatever... Um, when they when they go into that, it feels overwhelming. It feels as if you're going to die. It feels as if it's every part of you is screaming out. But logically, there must be a point at which that starts. It doesn't just. It's not digital. It's analog. You know, it, it mm. begins and it progresses. So if you can catch it right at the beginning, you can begin to understand that it is something that the body is actually doing, and right. you can actually then develop some skills in. Um, noticing when it is arising and develop the ability to control it in that way. And so you go back to the source, I guess, in that sense where, you know, say you had something like social anxiety where you are imagining how stressful that situation is going to be if you go to a party or something. Um, and so it's trying to find a point where that becomes just normal, just a normal feeling and stops, t doesn't tip over into the kind of anxiety that just stops you going out anyway. Yeah, yeah, we and, and we do. We catastrophize and we build these things up and, yeah. um, 
you know, they never go well in your imagination if it's something that you're <clears throat> not yeah. looking forward to or something that you don't enjoy. So you, you kind of, you make it worse and worse and worse. And then, of course, you go through it and it, it lives up to, to every bit of the billing that it gets. Right. Um, however, if you... If we start to think of that as being, you know, why does, why does someone experience that? Well, the, actually, the why question tends not to be very helpful. We're not, this is not about going back to your childhood and, you know, finding out when you were first socially anxious and, and somehow some sort of cathartic release or whatever. A lot of people who think about public speaking... Um, find that very, very stressful. And when you think about it, most of us are exposed to the experience of public speaking by being put into a situation for which we are not prepared. You're suddenly thrust in front of the other boys and girls at primary school and told, to, you know, what I did on my holidays. You've been given no training, so your performance is lousy. The other kids laugh you get embarrassed and then you sit down and you never ever get up again in the rest of your life if you can possibly avoid it. <laughs> well, that, you know, yeah. you, we can think about that as being an example of trauma. Yeah, sure, but it actually did happen. A better way of thinking about it is um, what skills could you develop that would prepare you better for that situation? Now, this, this does two things. It prepares you for that situation. Uh, but it also puts the attention where it's much more helpful, which is on your externals. Because anyone who's socially anxious, who's, who's finding themselves surrounded by other people who appear to be having a whale of a time, but you feel tongue-tied and stupid and, you know, hating it, um, two, two things are going on there. One, your focus is right on where it really shouldn't be. You are inflaming that feeling just by noticing it and by paying attention to it. First thing. The second thing is you've only got a limited amount of attention. If it's on your insides, then your outsides are not going to be helpful at all. You're actually going to look like you're having a terrible time. So people are going to avoid you like the plague. And therefore, you will reinforce the experience because people are going, well, I'm not fucking going near him because he looks like a, a wet weekend. Yeah, that nicely connects to something that you said. Uh, I saw a video that you, uh, you posted that... Um one thing that we tend to do, uh, particularly when we're talking about social anxiety, is we compare ourselves to what mm. we see other people, how we perceive other people's outside, uh, and we sort of compare our insides with their outsides. Mm. And you were saying that we can't directly experience things from anybody else. You know, we're only kind of we're only seeing what they are presenting to us. Yes. So, I mean, do you work do you work with that kind of reframing in terms of anxiety? I do because it, it's kind of, it's one of those things that's obvious once you've heard it. But most of us uh, haven't really reflected on the fact that we experience our own lives um, from the inside. You, you have um, uh, nerves which give you this thing called interoception. You're getting feedback all of the time that's telling you whether you're fearful or happy or, or whatever it might be. So we've got a special access to what's going on inside our own heads and inside our own bodies. I cannot access you in that way. I have to judge by your externals, by what your expression is, um, and by all the other sensory, um, you know, kind of ways of, of yeah. communicating. So we're, we're not comparing like with like. Um, and one of the things I've noticed about people who are socially anxious is they assume that everyone else is feeling fine. Yes. And they assume that based on the evidence, which is that people are smiling, that they're laughing, that they're chatting. And, and so if you say to them, well, if you were smiling and chatting and laughing, would you still be anxious? Well, 
oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, why are you anxious? Because I'm the only one who's anxious when everyone else is happy. How do you know they're happy? Because it's written yeah. on their faces. So, <laughs> so we're so we're it's a double whammy, isn't it? We're basically we're worrying about what people are thinking of us, and we're also assuming that we are the only person there who's sort of inadequate or, or, or you know who's not feeling good. That's so true. <laughs> and actually, one of the most useful skills for someone who's um, experiencing social anxiety is um, to, to focus on the externals, so to make sure that you are actually smiling and that your body language um, is is pretty good. Um, mm. And also then to just have a couple of questions which deflects the attention from you. So that, you know, we play this old game. When you meet someone, you say, so, mm. okay, so what do you do for a living? And the usual rules of a conversation are uh, you listen to them until they pause for breath and then you start speaking. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> that, has, that has worked for quite, quite a good many years, Steve, I have to say. I don't, I don't know what your <laughs> radical solution to that is going to be. <laughs> Well, my radical solution to that is that actually, secretly, the only thing that any of us is interested in is ourselves. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the worst thing you can hear in the morning is, I had the strangest dream, uh, you know, from your partner, because you think, oh, God, she's going to tell right. me about this dream. And the only thing that can possibly save it is the question that is in your head, which is, was I in it? <laughs> That's the only thing that will make the dream bearable. So when you ask someone what they do and they start telling you, then they will dry up because they, they, don't, they assume that you're not interested. If, however, yeah. you start to assume that your job is not to be interesting but to be interested, right. and once the yeah. person realises you're not taking the piss and you genuinely do want to hear more about what a chartered accountant does for a living, uh, <laughs> they will they will think, oh, hallelujah, finally someone gets me. Finally someone realises how interesting my world is. And you will never shut them up. So instead of having this sort of generalised fear, I mean, we are talking a lot about social anxiety at the moment, but it's a good example. Instead of having this generalised fear of social situations, you realise that there are practical things you can do to improve your experience in social situations. And so that, that will help you to not catastrophise or not, not yeah. to... You know, project forward. So, I mean, yeah. it does sound a lot like CBT, Steve. I mean, there's yes. a lot, a lot of parallels here that we mentioned it in the pilot episode that about neurolinguistic programming as well. That some of the ideas are, are in that field are, are about how to replace what you're feeling with something better, or yeah. to improve, you know, improve yourself rather than go back to your, you know, your abusive father or whatever. It's about taking practical steps to kind of instead of bemoaning how you got to this point. It's about taking practical steps to improve yourself, yeah. I guess. Oh, and I've really only talked about the, the first half of the session, which is why it sounds so much like CBT or um, yeah. NLP. Um, because the hypnotherapy part of it is the point at which the um, the cognitive part of the of, of the client, you know, because all the work that I've talked about so far can be done um, uh, with the client uh, wide awake and aware. Um uh, then the, the second part of the session is when you invite the, that cognitive part to just kind of take a rest. You get the client into a uh, relaxed, daydreaming-type state and talk to the subconscious, which is which is probably the subject of a, another whole discussion, um, except to say that it, 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 when you think about what that actually means, um, what you don't want to do is to be 
dwelling on the subject that the client has come for. Because if I were to say to you, you are no longer a smoker, you don't enjoy smoking, then smoking is not something that you're really doing all of the time. Mm. All that the, 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 the circuitry of the brain is doing is repeating the same circuitry, but with the word not in front of it. Okay. So, you know, I mean, anyone who's who's on a diet, thinks about food more than anything else. You know, someone who's trying desperately not to, not to have a cigarette is thinking about cigarettes all of the time. Mm. So if, if those things are really a solution that's no longer working, what you want to do is to work out an alternative solution and appeal to that. Right. Which in, in social anxiety can be that the client will have an experience of feeling... Um, a sense of, of um, not necessarily of mastery, but of being comfortable in other situations, maybe with people that you feel completely at home and relaxed with. That's a social setting. It's just a social setting that doesn't feel threatening and that somehow you have excluded from your social anxiety. It doesn't feel like um, that's a problem. So the same part of, the, of the, the, the client that is able to be comfortable and to feel uh, simpatico or however you want to put it in that situation knows how to do that when with other people. Hmm. So it then becomes an application problem. It's not an ability thing anymore. The client, that part of the client's psyche knows how to do it. It's just that it doesn't know how to, how to bring that part out in a different situation. Right, so it's kind of, it's the compulsion uh, for the, you know, for the dopamine hit of a cigarette or whatever it might be is if you can reframe that into something perhaps less toxic uh, as, as they would see it. Uh, is that something that hypnotherapy could do? Yeah, or, or um, this thing, know. this thing. Sorry, Steve. This thing, addictive mm. personality. Yeah, I hear this a lot. It, what? Yeah, this, that's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, is that really a thing? Is it? Some do people have more addictive personalities than others? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so well, it, it must be the case that we we ha we are variable in that as we are in so many things. You know, we, mm. you and I have different senses of of humour, different pain thresholds. Um, like things, dislike different things. There's no reason to think that we would be exactly equivalent in in our exposure to um, particular substances. But yeah. that's not a helpful observation. It's not a good start point. Um, because often, you know, clients will say to me, I smoke because I have an addictive personality. Now, almost anyone who goes and sees a hypnotherapist wanting to stop smoking has at some stage in their life been able to stop smoking for a period of time. Three mm. weeks, three months, three years, and then they start again. Well, hang on. <laughs> That's almost a demonstration of, of, of the opposite of an addictive personality because yeah. you... You've actually stopped. You know, the the addiction, the, the chemical addiction, is clearly not what, what made you start the smoking again. So something else is going on. Yeah, you can't uh, stay stopped. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have the ability to stop. It's not like your addictive personality is the evil part of you that's controlling you. You, do, you, you may have that. That may be a dimension of your personality, but you do have... The, you know, you have control over that. You've demonstrated that when you stopped. So yeah. it's, it's more an issue of how you, you know, how you weave that into your daily life or maybe your other social situations that you get involved in that may tempt you to back towards smoking or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, recently here in Australia and in, in, uh, in Victoria, they stopped smoking in, in prisons. Right. And they just <laughs> turned it, it off. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, and, and you and you can imagine what the what the reaction was like. There were there were riots because, you know, most people in prison and in lots of other places. Of, of that sort spoke because they're self-medicating. Yeah. They're in such desperate pain yeah. and they don't have access to anything. That's the best that they can get their hands on. Mm. You know, so so if you if you suddenly switch that off and offer no alternative, then um, you, you're taking away the, the one thing that is that is keeping someone going. Uh, and, and similarly, someone who stops smoking for a period of time, next time they're at a particularly low ebb, mm. They're likely, you know, not even consciously, at a at a subconscious level, they're li- likely to reach out for all the resources that they know, right. you know. So it, it goes back to that it being a solution, which it mightn't be your chosen solution, but it's the best one that you know. So before we finish, we're focusing on male mental health because, I mean, the main reason we wanted to focus on male mental health was the appalling uh, suicide statistics for men, which are it's the biggest killer, certainly in the UK, of men under the age of 45 which mm. you know is a, a, a desperate mystery why i think why that's why mm. that seems to be so specific to men and what's why why mental health or therapy you know culture in general seems to be not working for men or um so you know i mean you're you you work in australia where the the, the, the male sort of macho stereotype is i would i would imagine still pretty strong and do you find do you find there particularly that men struggle to come forward to to accept help? You know, are there cultural difference, differences, or is it just a universal expectation? I, I, I don't know if it's universal, but I certainly, having lived both in the UK, obviously, and, and now for twenty years mm. in Oz, I, I I don't see much 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 of a difference. The, the statistics are equally horrifying here as as they are there. Mm. Um, I, I I wonder if. Part of it is is that we've we've lost the easy the easy structure and the easy consolation of you know um, religion and a, and a highly structured um, kind of hierarchy in society. We've you know and and yeah. I think for the for the personally, I think for the best. I think that they, a, a lot of bad things went uh, when they went, but they left they yeah. left a vacuum that we haven't yeah. replaced. And um, and and quite rightly, uh, uh, women are getting a, a lot uh, more of a you know a, an equal go at things now. It's we're still not there yet, um, but that too was a kind of an easy consolation for a man to feel as if there was a, a structure and an order in the universe, and men were at the top of the heap. Uh, you know, none of those things are are true anymore, and we haven't gone close to replacing any of that. And there is still this great sense of of shame and taboo, particularly for for men, around admitting weakness of any kind, not just of to do with mental health so do you find that uh, men who come to you sort of come to you with softer issues like i want to stop smoking uh, you know they're they're rather than i can't cope you know my anxiety is too much yeah you you do often get that they will sort of a trojan horse sort yeah of effect, trojan horse maybe. and they they, they 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 want to start to feel comfortable with you before they will really open up yeah. that's the case in in some cases actually in quite a lot of cases they think that really is their issue and yeah. um and uh, and you have this kind of almost it's desperately sad in a way that you know half an hour into a session with a with a male client it's not just male but we're talking about men at the moment um there can be an awful lot of of tears and a lot of um emotion 
Um, because when else, when else do you get the opportunity to talk with that degree of kind of frankness and that, and that sense of being really heard and really being attended to? It's incredibly yeah. rare. Whatever helps. Any sort of idea that they want to disguise the reason they're going to a therapist, as long as they're, mm. you know, anything that gets done into the sort of therapy room or yeah. into some sort of place where they can actually uh, find a non-judgmental ear, mm. then surely that's got to be a good thing, I guess. So that's interesting. That's sort of the idea of your, you know, your external, you, how you think you look externally and how you're feeling internally. That really taps into that CBT thing, Tim, doesn't it? It does. The, um, well, I've noticed a theme across CBT, NLP and hypnotherapy, which is that you know, the more we can focus on others outside ourselves, the more we can get, get out of that sort of loop that can lead to uh, a worsening spiral. So I think what's, what Steve yeah. was talking about there was a really interesting approach, and um, it does tie in quite well. I'm so, I think actually re- realizing that link means that there is there, it makes me feel there's more truth in it. You know that there, we're all yeah. um, we're all kind of gathering towards the same truth, which is that it's better to it's better to look outside of yourself when you feel yourself looking inward. Yeah, thanks for all the feedback on our first. Sorry, what is it? Our zero episode. Yeah. I know we get confused about this, yeah. Andy, don't we? So, episode minus um, one. Uh, the, yeah, minus one. The one we did first, but is actually not episode one. Anyway, that's, we. I've got. Yeah. Anyway, I got, yeah. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> I got. Um, I got various feedback from people. Um, it was all anonymized. Um, we default to anon- anonymity. I can't say anonymity. anonymized. Yeah, that's it. Anonym- anonymity. Anyway. I just want to share a few insights that um, you've, some people have said. I, 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 a lot of people appreciated our frankness and openness, so that's something I think we need to to keep. You know, I'm, I'm willing to share things that I probably may have felt uncomfortable with, but you know, it's useful to to get hear that people really find that refreshing and useful. One piece of feedback that I got that I wanted to share with you, Andrew, was that um, when we talked through what we our history, our personal history with mental his, uh, mental health. Um, we both kind of nailed it down to a cause, and uh, I had I struggled with that actually because I think um, you know we had a few to and froes about what what actually might be the traumas in our past that might have led to it. But I, I had to, one piece of feedback that struck a chord in me, which was: is is there always an obvious cause to your yeah. mental health? Because the person in question was was saying maybe you know he couldn't necessarily nail it down to a specific incident in his mm. past. He, and I think that's really important because. If you do feel depression and anxiety, you don't then have to go and find the reason yeah. for it. You, you are, it's totally valid to just feel that. You, know, you, you don't have to feel that's invalidated by, let's say, a comfortable middle-class existence or no traumas. The interview with Steve earlier, he, he talked about, picked up on something we, which caused a little tiny bit of controversy in episode zero. Oh, yeah. I mistakenly attributed to CBT when actually it was an NLP position. But I think there's a shared view that looking back is not always the healthiest or most useful i should say way of dealing with a a problem so um i've got a bit of a mind to that and and steve carey brought it up as well saying it's actually more useful to think okay what what am i going to do to get out of this mindset rather than what caused it and spend a lot of time analyzing that we did it last time but um but the i suppose i wanted to validate that particular bit of response to say if you don't have any obvious triggers it's you shouldn't feel bad about that yeah not like oh i saw i saw my brother fall into a 
piece of industrial machinery yeah. <laughs> when I was 12 or something like that. <laughs> Although if that did happen to you, that might be the cause. <laughs> yeah, um, we're, we're not making light of that. So, yeah, we did get some great feedback. And I got some... I got a great email from somebody who said that they struggle, he struggled with depression uh, following the suicide of a family member. And he said that he'd found that difficult as a man to seek help or even to understand what kind of approach might help him. Mental health awareness is better at the moment, but it's how you translate that into what you actually do, you know, yeah. what, what action you actually take. And that's one thing we're trying to do this podcast is to give you lots of... Um, is to show you the pros and cons of all the approaches perhaps mm. and to kind of give you a steer maybe towards this sort of path that could help you. So a feedback I got from this guy, he mentioned an interesting angle he said about parenting, and you and I are both parents, aren't we? So um, he said perhaps many men, uh, once they become fathers, they feel they need to sort of park their mental health problems because yeah. um, and concentrate on being a good father and there's just too much going on, you know, they can't. You know, it's when nappies need changing, and when uh, you know you're you're in that sort of madness of um, you know what it's like when you first bring a bring a baby home from hospital. It's terrifying. Yeah. And, well, it's the responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. And he yeah. said that a lot of people, a lot of men, particularly, just sort of think, right, okay, I, I can't, I've got time to address my mental health at the moment, and obviously that's incredibly dangerous. And I would say the wrong way of looking at things, really. If you, I don't really see how you could possibly enjoy. It's a, it's difficult. It's a, it's obviously a very difficult thing, parenting, and um, but I don't see how you could possibly enjoy engaging with your children if you're uh, in the grip of a mental health crisis. So you know that's just you're constantly trying to stifle. But but you, I mean, it was a really good, interesting insight, and something I'm sure will come up again because we all have responsibilities out. So whether it's parenting, or whether it's the job you've got, um, or you know, there's there's friends family there's lots of things that we have to maintain along with our own mental health and i think that balance is always something that's uh you know a struggle to maintain i think we can all relate to that can't we even if you're not a parent so before we close up in terms of when we're talking about feedback um we're talking about mental health and you often get uh the little voices in your head telling you telling you things you know that's not good enough or um what you're trying to do you know imposter syndrome and one thing that i did i got a little sort of um thing in my head was where we where we just I was wondering whether it was a bit trite to just be saying, go and talk to somebody, all right? And um, it, I suppose it can feel that way, but I just wanted to say that I think yeah. some people obviously don't feel feel like they can talk to anybody. They just don't, they're not at that point yet. And um, just to kind of clarify that if you're not ready to talk to somebody yet, then, um, you know, just keep listening, yeah. keep, uh, keep taking in this kind of... The, the, the feedback and the, the options we're, we're trying to give you and um it but and you know we just mean that trying to struggle through your day you know humping around all this internal uh sort of mental weight whatever form that takes doesn't make it go away it just weighs yeah. it you know it just makes the weight um sort of feel heavier you know and, and so and i know from my own experience of therapy that taking some action to get it out into the open if that's if that is available to you, is often the first step towards uh, you know a new way of living. Definitely, the um, I had a <clears throat> recently um, a friend of a friend took his own life um, in the last six months, and uh, I didn't know the person, but my friend, who you know shared friend, um, mentioned that he, it was partly because he withdrew. He used to go walking a lot with his friends, and that would help him with his mental issues. And um, he then withdrew. He actually moved from from England to New Zealand, um, 
and he did a lot of walking, but it was on his own. Uh, it was isolated. Yeah. And actually, his, his partner thinks that was probably the reason why, well, you know, it certainly didn't help. You know, it, as we have a nat- natural inclination to retreat into ourselves, and again, yeah. it's a bit of a theme that we picked up in the interview earlier with Steve and it's expanded on in the extra. It, the more we kind of introvert, that is definitely not helpful, isn't it? No. Um, so being talking to people, being in, being with friends, being with people you can share is definitely a positive step forward. So when you can be ready for it, I think it's something to encourage. Yeah, and I think you often get with men particularly, in Robert Webb's book, he talks about uh, how not to be a boy. He talks about this thing when you grow up and you're told what boys and what men are supposed to be feeling and supposed to do and supposed to behave like. They're, um, and one of these things is, you know, if you're feeling vulnerability or you're feeling sensitivity or... Uh, then you're not certainly not supposed to show that externally, and um, and you can see how yeah. if you are f- if you actually are feeling that, then you think I'm not supposed to be feeling that, and it will start to make you feel inadequate and not a proper boy or man. And that feedback loop is is extremely dangerous, I think, and that just makes the noise kind of louder and louder when it just stays inside you. So um, yeah. I think it's much better to it's not a silver bullet to be. You know, to be talking and to be open and honest, but it, I think it can be the first step to understanding yourself, you know, and, and your behaviour, and to maybe start to change things for the better. Absolutely. Another uh, colleague of mine, really, um, his sister committed suicide, and he, mm. um, it was only he came to me to talk about it actually, and it was only because I'd opened up by doing this podcast, he'd realised that I'd I'd opened up and said I've got mental health issues, that he felt com- he's quite a macho guy, that he felt comfortable coming to me right. and saying. I think I need to talk to someone. And I said, yeah, you know, oh, you, you talk to me for sure, but I'd definitely go and talk to a, a specialist. Mm. And I, I um, you know, I think in a minor way, when you open up, it really does help others. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I think it means that but other people feel comfortable with the idea. And that's the kind of the spirit of this podcast in a way, isn't it? Yeah. But by sharing our insights and our experience, we can hopefully make it, Less stigmatised. Yeah, less of a lonely kind of feeling, I guess. Like I was saying before, less mm. it feels like it's just sort of rebounding around inside your head. Yeah. And maybe a bit less less of a, a monster when you get it out into the light, you know, rather than having it just gnawing away inside you. Uh, you can sort of take a look at it and, look, and, you know, work it out and try and understand yeah. what the hell's going on. Please keep your feedback coming. Contact at emotionalcripples.com. Uh, by email or the um, Twitter handle e at em yeah. cripples em for um, the start of emotional. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> e. um, <laughs> uh, and and for for the love of God, um, leave us a rating uh, on iTunes. And if you can, if you can be bothered, please uh, a review would be great. Just a few yeah. words, just sort of you know we lo- I love these guys or. Mm. Uh, we may we write a few suggestions yeah. for reviews if you want to cut and paste them and if you can't if you leave if you're that lazy um it does help it does help <laughs> with our algorithms and um it's the world it we live in you know you can sit and it complain does. and say i preferred it when it was just the wireless but um it's not yeah so you know get over it <laughs> we have to <laughs> we have to kind of try and help our visibility um <laughs> we'll try and get this on the wireless but i don't think i don't think anyone's going to be taking it right now so for now it's a yeah podcast. for now we just have to we have to rely on on you it's no good sitting there now going this is quite mm. good whatever you're doing on the bus or you know making the stir fry yeah thinking this is great 
get just help us out by telling the world that. <laughs> That'll be nice. So next episode, when's the next episode out? The next episode of this will be out on Friday. So yeah, come back, talk to us. Emotional Cripples was devised and performed by Andrew Lowe and Tim Tucker. Designed by Stuart Bache. All music by The Weathermonger. If you have been affected by the issues in this podcast, uh, you can call the Samaritans in the UK on 116-123. Or if you're outside the UK and Ireland, check out befrienders.org. You'll find a link in the show notes.